You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to continue our series as we begin a new year. Uh, We're going to be continuing the series that we were in last year called Gospel Culture in God's Household. Today we're in 1 Timothy chapter 5. One of the wonderful blessings of preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't really know as the preacher where the text is going to lead you next. You know, if I were to choose a sermon for the first Sunday of a new year, I might choose something like, you know, optimism for a new year or resolutions for how you can change your your daily habits. Well, in the Lord's providence, what he has led us to in our series in 1 Timothy is a text that focuses on the specific topic of caring for widows, caring for widows. That's probably not the first topic anyone would choose when you're thinking about the first Sunday of a new year. But in the Lord's providence, that's what he has led us to. And I believe that this will be a timely word for us, uh, particularly when we focus on the needs of seniors and those who are in long-term care facilities, uh, those who are in need of, of physical provision, of emotional provision, of spiritual provision. We want to turn our attention to God's heart for widows. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God reveals himself as having special concern for the needy, uh, particularly orphans and widows. Uh, Henry just read for us that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, verse 18 says, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68 calls God the protector of widows. It says, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. God God is the protector of widows. When he extends his mighty hand of divine protection, he is not on the lookout for the wealthy or for the rich or for the influential. He is on the lookout for the weak. He is watching out for orphans and widows because he is aware that they need help. And he stands ready to provide that help to them. He does this in many ways, but especially through his people, because his people are his hands and his feet in the world. If God cares for the weak, then God's people are called to do the same, to extend care to widows and orphans to be their protector. In fact, in the New Testament, in James chapter 1, verse 27, the apostle James writes, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so in our text today, the Apostle Paul is going to get very practical with young Timothy and he's going to give him specific instructions about how a ministry to widows within the local church is meant to look like. And we, as a local church standing in uh, the 21st century, uh, we are called to apply this teaching to our church and to how we care for widows, uh, as well as for anyone else in the church who is weak and unable to provide for themselves. 
So with that in mind, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and I will be reading to verse 16. This is the word of the Lord. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow left all alone has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. The title of this sermon is Caring for the Weak. Caring for the Weak. We're going to have three points today. First, why we should care for the weak. Second, who should care for the weak. And third, how we should care for the weak. First point, why we should care for the weak. Now, you'll recall why I named this series in 1 Timothy, Gospel Culture in God's Household. It's because in chapter 3, Paul calls the local church God's household. And that is because the church is meant to be God's family. God, the Father, is the head of this household, which is found in the local church. And God has welcomed us to himself, not only as his welcome guests, but as his beloved children. And that has implications on how we relate to God and how we relate to one another. And Paul captures the one another implications in verses 1 to 2, when he writes, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And so we see that, that every group, every demographic in the church has its equivalence, has its parallel in the traditional family structure. Timothy is to, relate to, is to relate to older men as he would relate to a father. And that means that he is to relate to older men as, as, as one who is respectful, as one who is deferential. It doesn't matter that he is the pastor of the church, that he carries spiritual authority over every member of his church, including older men. His spiritual authority doesn't give him license to treat people like they are beneath him. 
Yes, it is true that he is to command and teach, and he is even to rebuke and silence uh, anyone who is teaching false teaching, regardless of how old they are. But he, num- he must never forget that he must honor those who are older than him. When I had been pastoring for about a year, a wise old pastor asked me what I found most difficult about my pastoring experience up to that point. And I said, I said to him, well, I don't really know how to pastor older men. Because it was partly my upbringing, it's partly my youth, it's, it's partly Chinese culture, uh, but, but my upbringing teaches me not to instruct older men, but to, but to kind of silently respect them. Well, in his wisdom, this old pastor pointed me to this verse, and he said, Josh, you're, you're not wrong about that. There's nothing wrong with that instinct to respect those who are older than you, but you can respect them even as you instruct them. Philip Ryken, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, writes, showing respect for one's elders is not simply a cultural convention. It is the will of God. And Paul then tells Timothy to relate to younger men as brothers. And Timothy is to love the younger men in the church, not just as people to manage or even as sheep to feed, but as brothers to love. He, he is to treat them as his equals. They are members together of God's household because God as the father is the head of the house, not the pastor. The pastor has delegated authority, not inherent authority. The same is true in how he relates to older women. He is to relate to them as mothers, to cherish them and to honor them like he would his own mother. And if you know about Timothy's story, uh, you will know uh, that this would have been a very personal exhortation because Timothy was raised by his grandmother and by his mother, his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. Um, Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, they were the ones who passed down the Christian faith to him. And now he's telling Timothy to treat older women in the church with the same affection and care that he had for his own mother. He is also to treat younger women as sisters in all purity. And this is both a beautiful picture and a sobering warning. It is a beautiful picture because it shows the the family dynamic within the church. He is to love the younger women in the church like his own sisters, to protect them, to counsel them, to show them the affection of a brother. But he is to do so in all purity. He isn't to let his love for his sisters turn to lust. He is to be above reproach in how he relates to the younger women in the church so that their love for one another would be pure and unstained by sin. Now I know that many young men recognize the first part of that instruction. They, they treat younger women as their sisters, but they forget the second part of the exhortation and they forget that they are to relate to them in all purity. And I wonder how many moral pitfalls would be avoided if they just remembered to relate to their younger sisters in all purity. Men, don't just love your sisters. Love them in all purity so that you don't fall into temptation and so that you don't tempt your sisters. And that may mean not being as personal with them as you would like. That may mean 
backing away a little bit from a friendship so that you don't develop an emotional connection that develops into something else. Whatever it may be, we must find ways to love younger women as sisters in all purity as we live together in our father's household. Now that's verses one and two. The rest of this text, verses three to 16, is all about how we are to relate to widows. 14 verses for widows and two verses for everyone else. Before we dig into the details, let's not miss what this says about the heart of God. That that God has a heart for the weak. He, He sees the needs of the weakest among us. And he wants to give us detailed instructions inscripturated for us in his holy word that would last for as long as this world lasts. God loves widows and he wants to move his people to meet the needs of widows. Paul urges us to do that in verse three when he writes, honor widows who are truly widows. Now the word honor here means more than just kind of saying things that lift them up. It, it, it means to value them highly by, provi- by providing for them financially. And we know that because of how Paul uses the word honor a little later on in chapter five. When he's speaking about elders, in verses 17 and 18, he says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. And so they are to honor the elders who are among them by providing for them financially, by providing their wages for them. And so to honor widows is the same. It is to provide for them financially. And that makes sense because he just spoke about how we are to uh, honor and treat older women as mothers. And who among us wouldn't provide financially for our widowed mothers? The church will do the same because the church is God's household, and we are a spiritual family. And that, that, that shows us that this language of the church as a spiritual family, it's not just a sentimental idea. It's not just a helpful metaphor. It is, it is a reality that has real life implications on how we relate to one another, on the responsibilities that we carry towards one another. But there are some qualifications. Verse three says that the church is to honor widows who are truly widows. Now he's not saying that some widows are more widowed than others. If you are a widow, you are equally widowed than everyone else uh, who is widowed, who has lost a spouse. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, what he's saying is that only some widows truly qualify to be honored as widows through the provision of financial means by the local church. Paul uses this phrase, truly widows, three times in these verses. Verse three, honor honor widows who are truly widows. Verse five, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, etc. And verse 16, if any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. And so the church has a biblical mandate to provide for, for those who are truly widows, not for all widows, but for those who are truly widows. And we'll look at what that means later on in uh, our examination of this text. But before that, we need to look at who is responsible for providing 
for those who are not truly widows, because all widows are in need, especially in that socioeconomic context where women usually didn't work, they didn't have their own income, they weren't financially independent. Who would provide for those who are widows but who don't fall under this more narrow category of truly widows? Well, this leads to our second point. And the answer is found in verse four, where Paul writes, if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Now, if you've been following along in this series on 1 Timothy, you know that, that godliness has been one of the central themes of this letter. Back in chapter two, Paul wrote about how we are to pray for the government that we might be godly and dignified in every way. And then in chapter three, when Paul is writing about the qualifications of elders and deacons, he focuses on the godliness of their lives. And then in chapter three, verse 16, he he writes about the mystery of godliness. And then he launches into that Christ hymn, that glorious poem about the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter four, he he writes that we are to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness because godliness has value in every way, um, both for this life and in the life to come. And here, here in chapter five, Paul says that believers are to show godliness to their own household. So what we see is that, that godliness starts in the heart, but it inevitably shows itself in our actions. And here in verse four, Paul says that one of the ways we show the godliness that that the spirit is working in our hearts is when we make some return to our parents. We we show that all the investments of time and resources and affection that our parents made in our lives over the years have come back to them with interest as we care for them in the same ways that they cared for us. Now, this tells us something very important about the relationship between the church and the family. Yes, the church is a family, but it is not a family that replaces the families that we grew up in. The church doesn't eliminate our family ties. Instead, it expands our family ties so that we we embrace our spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters into our personal communities. A few years ago, a skeptic approached me. This skeptic is related to someone in our church, and she asked how she could know that our church wasn't a cult. Now, it's a little bit of an awkward question, because if we are truly a cult, then I'm the cult leader. And you're asking the cult leader to give a self-diagnosis of the, the, the nature of his cult. Well, I didn't say that. Uh, But what I did say was, um, well, one of the elements of a cult is that cults are all about control. And one of the ways that the cult exercises control is that it forces its members to sever all ties and connections to those who are outside of the cult. The the, the cult community becomes an exclusive sphere of association. Well, our church doesn't do that. And no faithful biblical church would do that. On the contrary, we we send our members back into their families and we expect them to be better spouses, we expect them to be better parents, and we expect them to be better children. Because Jesus, he doesn't take us away from those 
around us. He, he sends us back to them, transformed by the Spirit and filled with his presence. Jesus does change our ultimate allegiance so that we follow Jesus, even if our families abandon us, but we will still do whatever we can to love our families and to provide for them. Jesus demonstrated this commitment himself when he provided for his own widowed mother as he hung there on the cross in the excruciating agony of his suffering, his eyes fixed on the apostle John and on his mother Mary and he entrusted them to one another. Woman, behold your son. My son, behold your mother. Even as he bore the full wrath of God for our sins upon himself as he hung on the cross, his heart was to care for his widowed mother. And now Jesus expects the same of us. Paul writes in verse four that if we are truly godly, we will go back to our households and care for our parents for, listen, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This, this makes God happy. When God sees you caring for your parents, particularly your widowed parents, he, he looks upon that and he smiles. It pleases our father. And Paul gives us another reason to care for our parents in verses seven to eight. He, he, he says to Timothy, you are to command these things so that they may be without reproach. That is, these believing families who have widowed parents to care for. Paul is concerned about this because of, it, of how it may affect the witness of the Christian community. Don't, don't bear the reproach of seeing the community around you look at you and say, what kind of people are they? What kind of power does this gospel have when they abandon their elderly, frail parents? Verse eight says that such a person is worse than an unbeliever because even unbelievers in general, care for their elderly parents. And how much more should we? How much more should we? We, we who have the spirit of God dwelling in us. We, we who have been transformed by the, by, by, by the gospel and so that we could live a life of love. We who have the 10 commandments. And the fifth commandment in particular, which calls us to honor our mother and father without qualification. Listen, the gospel doesn't free us from the responsibilities to care for our families. It frees us to fulfill those responsibilities in a way that honors the Lord. And verse eight is clear that if we don't take this responsibility seriously, then we have denied the faith. If we see our entry into this new spiritual family called the local church as an excuse to abandon our family responsibilities, then we have no biblical grounds to believe that we truly belong to Christ. Families are to care for their own members. But where there are no family members, that is when the church steps in. The church steps in and, and functions as an additional safety net for those who are truly widows so that they also would be provided for. And this leads to our third point. How, how do we do that? How does the local church care for those who are truly widows. 
Now, in order to understand these verses properly and to not take them out of context, I need to make a few comments on the differences between the church's responsibility and the individual Christian's responsibility. Okay, they, they, they have some overlap, but they are still distinct spheres of responsibility. For example, the church is called to administer the sacraments. The individual is not. The church is called to, to raise up and commission and ordain pastors to preach the whole counsel of God. The individual Christian is not. The church is called to exercise spiritual discipline in appropriate cases. The individual Christian is not. And on the other hand, uh, individuals may be called to, to do things like uh, to free people from human trafficking or to advocate for religious freedom or to start a pregnancy care center. Those are all excellent tasks that are well worth our time, our effort, and our resources. But they fall outside of the church's explicit biblical mandate. The church, through its teaching, will equip believers to, to go out into those areas of life and to be actively engaged in our culture. And in some cases, it may even be appropriate for the local church to partner with, a, with an individual or with an organization that is involved in these areas. But if a church begins to define itself by its involvement in these social issues, then it has actually ceased to function as a true biblical church. Both the church and the individual Christian have their own spheres of responsibility. They overlap, but they are distinct. And that is important for us because our text today says that the church has a responsibility towards Christian widows. Not all widows, and not even all Christian widows, but those who are truly widows. But that doesn't mean that Individual Christians, we're talking about this sphere over here, are therefore free from caring for non-Christian widows or other non-Christians who are in a, a position of vulnerability and need. As individual Christians, we have a broader mandate than the church does when it comes to meeting needs around us. And that really was the purpose of the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Jesus told that parable to exhort his followers, those who follow Jesus, who believe in his name, who imitate his example, to meet the needs of those who are around them, even if those people fall outside of their communities. It's with that in mind that we are to read this text. This text is about the church providing for faithful Christian widows. If we were to look at the individual responsibilities of individual Christians, then we'd have to look elsewhere. So, who are those who qualify as truly widows? Verse 5, she who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. The first qualification, of course, we, we've already looked at. She's left all alone. She has no family members to provide for her. The second qualification is that she has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. In other words, she's not a nominal Christian. Uh, she, is, she is not a self-indulgent hypocrite who does all the right religious things, but inwardly uh, she has no heart for God. Instead, her life is characterized by, by personal piety, she, she spends her time, even though she has limited means and limited energy, 
She spends her time praying for those around them, interceding for the church, caring for others through her personal communion with God. The third and fourth qualifications are found in verse nine. It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. She is to be a senior of an age where she can't reasonably be expected to remarry or to work and provide a living for herself. She must have been the wife of one husband, faithful to her wedding vows and therefore faithful with the church funds that will be entrusted to her. Now the fifth qualification I find the most interesting is in verse 10. She is to have a reputation for good works And uh, Paul then continues to give a number of examples of what qualifies as good works. This isn't an exhaustive list of good works. Paul makes that clear when he adds at the end of the verse that she has devoted herself to every good work. But but this list of good works is is a wonderful, encouraging list. She has brought up children. She has brought up children. Once again, she's not the kind of person who is self indulgent, she's not living for herself. She, she is not using her resources for her own pleasure. She is giving of herself for the good of others. She has poured out her life for the good of her children, raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And by the way, in that culture, there would have been a number of women who never had children. They, they, they never married or they were not able to, to, to raise children for whatever reasons and, and yet those women would, be, would have been involved in the nurturing community of the church to raise up the children, to come alongside families that did have children and to, to be in a, a faithful auntie. A good example of humble faith to the children around her. She is to have shown hospitality. She, she has opened wide the doors of her home. And she has welcomed the stranger in, just as Christ has welcomed her. She has washed the feet of the saints. Of course, this is the language that Jesus uses shortly before he goes to the cross as he exhorts his followers to wash each other's feet. She's known as a servant, one who is willing to do even the most menial of tasks without receiving any attention or honor for it. And she has cared for the afflicted Paul says. She has cared for the afflicted. She doesn't run from people who are in pain. She, she moves towards them. Her, her arms are, are wide open to embrace the broken, to lift up the needy, and to strengthen the weak. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself what kind of life you could live that would make God happy. What kind of life could you live and look back on and say, I have no regrets with how I used my time, how I poured myself out in this venture. What, what, what does that life look like? Well, Paul's telling us what that life looks like in these verses. Bring up children. If you don't have children, come alongside those who do. Open up your home and let it be a place of refuge for the lonely. Wash the feet of the saints. Have a servant heart and be willing to do the things behind the scenes that no one notices except your heavenly father. And care for the afflicted. You come to them and be present with people in their pain. 
And you immerse yourself in the word so that when it, times, it comes time to comfort those who are in affliction, to care for those who are in pain, you have a word to lift them up and to strengthen them and to lift their eyes to their savior. If you live this kind of life, a life devoted to every good work, then God promises that you will never be in need. The one who cares for others in their need will not be in need in their time of greatest need. Paul then provides an explanation for why younger women shouldn't be enrolled as widows. We're not going to spend too much time here, but I do want to explain these verses. And Paul provides two reasons for why younger women should not be enrolled as widows. And both of them arise from the situation where a younger woman could either remarry or work, but doesn't because she's getting free checks from the church. Verses 11 and 12 say, Refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now, first, this is quite confusing. Because in verse 11, it seems to imply that it's a bad thing to want to marry. But then in verse 14, Paul says the opposite, and he urges younger widows to remarry, bear children, and manage their households. How do we explain that? I think the best explanation for this is that in verse 11, Paul isn't talking about marriage per se. He's not talking about all kinds of marital arrangements. But instead, he's speaking specifically about marrying unbelievers, And that's why he talks about these younger widows who are remarrying as having abandoned their former faith in verse 12. And then in verse 15, he talks about them as straying after Satan. When Christian women intentionally and self-consciously marry a non-believer, a non-Christian man, they are making a statement that Christ isn't the Lord of their lives that something else matters to them more than their savior. And that is one of the sad consequences of putting young widows on church welfare. Instead of remarrying a good Christian man and, and being busy with the good work of raising their own children and managing their own households, she becomes idle. And when one is young and idle, it is only a matter of time before her eyes wander and her heart lusts after things that are spiritually destructive. The second reason is related for why younger women should not be enrolled as those who are truly widows. Verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Young, capable women who have nothing to do will inevitably find something to do. And what they do will not build up the church. It will tear it down. They will busy themselves with the business of others as they spread the poison of gossip. And so Paul says, do not enroll younger widows. Paul ends with this summary in verse 16, which captures everything that we've looked at so far. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So how do we apply this to our church today? Aside from just receiving the exhortation from the scriptures to care for those who are truly widows and those who are in their families to care for your elderly parents, how do we apply this? Well, let me briefly suggest three things. First, 
The church is meant to be diverse. The church is meant to be diverse. These verses reveal that this New Testament church, this this infant church that has arisen shortly after the the apostolic age or or was birthed during the apostolic age and and grew in the post-apostolic age, it reveals that the church wasn't just made up of young people, nor was it only made up of seniors. It was multi-generational. There were widows who were over 60, and there were men and women who were young enough to continue to work, who had the means to provide for those who were older. That is what a church is meant to look like because that's what the gospel produces. It brings people together who have nothing in common but Christ. And it creates a new spiritual family of people who are loved by God and who love one another. You know, when the people in the church are all the same, when they're all the same age, when they're all in the same stage of life, when they're all from the same culture, it really is easy to provide a worldly explanation for why this community exists. I mean, they they have so much in common. They, They are natural friends. But when young and old, rich and poor, families and widows gather together into one community, the only explanation is the transforming power of the gospel. And that brings God all the glory as he makes for himself a people from every language and nation and age to sing his praises, both in this life and in the life to come. Second, the church is meant to prioritize the weak. The church is meant to prioritize the weak. These days, you hear more about churches that target specific demographics for strategic reasons. They target millennials, or they target professionals. They target influential people. They they specialize in reaching a specific demographic for their own strategic reasons. They want to influence the influencers. Now, I don't doubt their motives, or even the pragmatism of that kind of strategic approach. But the problem with this approach to the church is that the weak will be neglected. I mean, who is going to start a church that targets seniors? Who's gonna target a church? Who's gonna target widows? Who's going to target those who add nothing to the church budget, but instead take away from it? Well, the answer is no one. And yet these are precisely the kinds of people that the church is meant to prioritize. We are meant to be a collection of weak and unimpressive people. We are meant to be a community that cares for the the destitute and the afflicted. It may not make strategic sense from a human perspective, but it is the biblical way of being the church. The church prioritizes the weak. Paul may have spent these verses addressing widows, but we could apply these verses equally to others, others who are weak, others who are in need. We could think about women who have been abandoned by their spouses and who are in a similarly vulnerable position. Or we could think about believers who have, who have disabilities or cognitive impairments who aren't able to provide for themselves. We are to care for those who cannot care for themselves because that is who God cares about. Lastly, 
The church is meant to be characterized by good works. The church is meant to be characterized by good works. When we think of good works, uh, we tend to think within a narrow definition of random acts of kindness, you know, shoveling a neighbor's driveway or, you know, volunteering at a soup kitchen. Those are excellent things, and we should be on the lookout to, to do those things. But, but here, Paul says that you are also doing good when you raise your children, when you invite people into your home, when you serve fellow believers, when you care for the afflicted. Good works are done when you parent your children well. Good works are done when you practice hospitality. Good works are done when you're present with those who are suffering. The Christian life is, is meant to be a life that pours out every good work. And this, this kind of life, a life devoted to every good work, is only possible when we know the good works that God has done for us in Christ. The good work that, that God the Father did when he welcomed us into his family, not just as guests, but adopted us as his beloved children. The good work of God the Son who served us in our weakness when he suffered and bled and died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. The good work of God the Spirit who dwells in us and cares for us in our affliction and comforts us in our pain. Good works spring out of the good work that Christ accomplished on the cross for our redemption so that we could be sent out into the world to do good for his sake. My friends, the church is meant to be diverse. The church is meant to prioritize the weak. The church is meant to be overflowing with good works. May the Lord help us to be that kind of church for his name's sake. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for reaching out to us in our weakness despite whatever strength we would have shown by worldly standards, by our careers, by our physical strength, by our wealth, we're all weak. We're all weak internally. But Christ reached down into our lives in our weakness and brought us to himself. We pray that we would have the same heart for the weak around us particularly for the weak who are among us, that we would care for widows, we would serve the elderly, that we would be a church that reflects your heart, your heart for widows, orphans, and for the weak. Help us to do this, Father, that the world may know what you are truly like and what you have done to save us in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name, amen.